uh, what I knew was my mom was more gullible than my dad. And my dad would leave early for work, and all I had to do was kind of sneeze, cough a little bit to make my mom think I was sick. And so she let me stay home from, from work. I mean, not work, uh, school. <laughs> school. School can be work. Anyway, she let me stay home from school. And, and it was fun up until uh, Bob Barker says to spay and neuter your pets, right? It was like that's, that was the highlight of being home is you got to watch The Price is Right. But after that, it's all downhill from there because then it's just the news and soap operas. Then you just get bored out of your mind, especially when you're faking it. Well, my neighbors, or our neighbors, I should say, uh, were homeschooled, lucky, and, um, and, and so they didn't have to play hooky. They got to go to, like, field trips to the library and the zoo and the park, and anyway, um, I hear them come home. Now, here's the deal. As soon as I hear them pull into the driveway, I got better. I don't know. Maybe that's the way God intended it that day. But anyway, it was, it was amazing just the work that God did in that moment. And I was like, I'm better. Hey, Mom, can I go outside and play? Oh, right. You, you can hear what my mom said. It's probably something similar to what your mom would say. You didn't go to school. You can't go outside and play. Well, that's not fair. I was sick in the morning, Mom, and I'm not sick now. I need to go outside. And, and so, like, you, you just think, this is just not fair. This is just not fair. This is just not fair. And so, I, again, I went to mom a few minutes later. Mom, Isaac's home. Can I go outside and play? No, you can't. You didn't go to school. You can't go outside and play. And so then, you know, when you're kidding, you just get indignant, right? So I told mom, that's not fair. I let her know about how poor of a job she's doing as a mom. I don't know why you're laughing. <laughs> so at that moment, she reaches out and grabs my forearm as I'm about to walk away. And that's when I turned, turned around to her, and I pulled my arm away from her. I ripped it away, and I said those three words that are the opposite of what she wanted to hear. I said, don't touch me. I hate you. And immediately, I can still see the look on my mom's face. Well, one, I was a little bit scared because my mom's small and scrappy. <laughs> so <laughs> I was just small. <laughs> I was going to jump down this. If she was coming at me, I was just going to jump down the steps and take that. You know, I would have rather done that. But she didn't. She just cried. And, and so did I. So I went and just went into my room and cried. <laughs> What's fair? What's not? We all have this like sense of, of what justice is. Some of you might know uh, an author, his name's N.T. Wright, and he writes in his book, Simply Christian, that our ingrained sense of justice is a proof for God. But at some point in our lives, our view of justice, of, of what's fair and what's not, gets tainted because, let's be honest, our view of fair is what benefits us. Like, we're not out there trying to trying to carry out justice, um, but when it infringes on us, you better expect a Facebook rant. Like, justice is what, what benefits us. I mean, we're ingrained with this from a child. Just go look, watch the playground for a few minutes, and you'll hear children say, that's not fair. My three-year-old daughter told me the other day that it's not fair, and she doesn't even know what fair is. I mean, you remember the, the end of the OJ trial, and whatever side you fell on, it's, 
It just wasn't fair. I don't even know. I didn't even know he was a football player. I just remember being like five years old, six years old, and being like, that's not fair. <laughs> that's just because that's what everyone else told me. The past few weeks, we've been going through the story, and by the past few weeks, I mean the last 700, and we're going through this story, and the last few chapters, you might have gotten this gist, or you might be saying the same thing. Man, what's happening to God's people just isn't fair. It's not fair. Remember last week, we talked about the, uh, the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Remember? Two kingdoms. Uh, and we'll summarize all this in a minute, so we'll, we'll get back to it. But there's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom just said, God, we don't want anything to do with you. And so the Assyrians came in, they destroyed the capital city, and now God's people scatter into exile. It's not fair, God. Well, then God protects them, right? Remember, God protected them. Uh, the, the southern king, kingdom, God protected the southern kingdom because Hezekiah, Sought God, him and Isaiah cried out to God about this. But if you finish the chapter this week in the story, you know that the Babylonians come in and destroy the temple. They destroy Jerusalem and they take some of the God's people in prison. Like to be their slaves and to be their warriors and to be their soldiers. That's not fair, God. And maybe it doesn't take you it doesn't take reading the Bible for you to have to say that. Maybe you're just in a season of life where you're thinking, man, this, this just isn't fair. I've put my time in. and Everyone else my age, their life looks drastically different than mine. Perhaps right now God is like this bully who's just waiting for you to walk out onto a playground just to beat you up, right? That's not fair. Maybe you just have this idea of God as an angry child on an anthill with a magnifying glass, and you're the ant. Maybe you've got this idea of God as a uh, uh, cosmic police officer just waiting around the corner that takes joy in writing you tickets. Um, I saw something this week that's, or last week that a police officer pulled someone over and um, he said, uh, license and registration, please. And the person that got pulled over said, hey, it's 98 degrees. Why don't you get inside, enjoy the air conditioning, and we'll talk about it, right? It, it was funnier. That joke was funnier when it was hot outside. <laughs> Y'all got shawls and cardigans on. I think I saw a parka out there. You know, a lot of people think of God that way, that he's not fair. That he's just an angry dude, right? Waiting to, to, there's a lot of people who just say, I'm not going to be a Christian. I'm not going to follow God because that God is not fair. He's not just. I'm hoping by the end of today, uh, after we talk through this passage and these stories, or the story today, and we make a few applications, that, that you and I might have a different view of what's fair and what's not. And that you and I will participate in the story. So there's some language that we've been using. If you're a guest with us this morning, there's some language we've been using that might help. We call God's upper story the whole narrative from beginning to end. And it's not complete yet. There's an ending that we haven't seen yet. And that's when Jesus comes back. But that's the whole upper story from Genesis to the end of Revelation. But then there's the lower story. That's what you and I are participating in. It's the small little glimpses that we get through the Bible and we see these, 
lower stories, but all lower stories make up the upper story. And so by participating in the lower story, we can participate in the upper story. So let's get caught up to where we are in the Bible, and then we'll jump right in. If you need a Bible, uh, you can follow along on your phone, on the Restore Church app, or the YouVersion Bible app, and you can search Restore under the live events. Um, Daniel's got some Bibles, so if you need one, just throw your hand up. He'll bring one to you. Uh, it's the same Bible I'm using, and uh, so there's no shame in that. Actually, uh, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 21, and so that's on page 267, if you're following with me, 267. Or you can follow along on the screens um, with us. But last week we left off um, with the southern kingdom kind of in good shape. Remember that the, God's people are divided. Uh, his, his nation that David was the king of and then Solomon was the king of has been divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom uh, last week, uh, even though they're warned over and over and over by different prophets, they still turn away from God and the Assyrians come in and scatter the people. Isaiah says to the southern kingdom, specifically to King Hezekiah, take that warning to be your warning. You're God's people, act like it. Return to God and he'll protect you. And the Bible says that Isaiah and Hezekiah cried out to God about this. Remember last week we talked about desperate prayers. And God saved them. He sent an angel, uh, an angel in the middle of the night to wipe out 185,000 soldiers. Can you imagine being around Hezekiah and Isaiah after that? Like, I'm just going to hang around them. I'm not going anywhere that you're not going, dude. Um, so you think that the southern kingdom would be in pretty good shape after that. Well, Hezekiah, the king of the southern kingdom, dies, and his son, who's the natural fit to be the next king, um, becomes, becomes king of, of Judah. His name is Manasseh. Here's the problem with Manasseh being the king, is uh, he's not even old enough to be finished with middle school yet. <laughs> he's 12 years old. Now, look, don't get me wrong. I was in youth ministry. Some of you are in our youth group here, um, which, by the way, youth group, look out for some events happening this summer. Shameless plug. Um, and, and we tell our, our youth group, you are just as valuable as the adults as a part of our church. And you are just as valuable as a member of the kingdom of God as anybody else. So get involved, Right? Tell your friends about Jesus. Read your, read your Bible at church. Invite your friends. I, I don't think I'm going to allow them to be the king of a nation. <laughs> right? Well, uh, the southern kingdom has gotten so far away from God that the Bible says this in 2 Kings, chap- in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 1. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. His mother's name was something strange. Manasseh, 12 years old. Can you tell that the people of God are in trouble? Right? They went from a godly king, someone that they couldn't deter, to a 12-year-old boy who can't say Southern Kingdom without his voice squeaking. <laughs> um, well, after Manasseh died, his 55-year reign, um, his son, uh, after Manasseh died, Amon became king. Then when he died, his son Josiah became king. Here's where it gets even more interesting. 
Manasseh was 12 years old. Josiah is 8 years old. Yeah, I know some of y'all's 8-year-olds. Right? They can't tell me how to tie my shoes. They're going to be the king? Now, I don't know. 8-year-old, can you tie your shoes at 8? I don't know. Just rock with Velcro and flip-flops and you're good. That's how I've been rolling my whole life. And no one ever knew I can't tie my shoes. Josiah is eight years old. And, and here's the thing. If God's the ruler of the nation, right? If this is a godly nation, it doesn't matter how old the king is. Everyone's got the same ground rules. Everyone's got the same focus, the same, uh, the same person we're running after. But the problem is this nation is all after themselves. Josiah, who is eight years old, so, in, uh, uh, not gullible, but uh, vulnerable, right? He's just going to follow what everyone else around him says. And so godless people lead him down the same path. So as the king of the nation, you can see just the morality of a nation decreasing. We wouldn't know anything about that. As a matter of fact... In, in, in both Kings and Chronicles, they list all of the kings, and more often than not, each king is followed by these words. This king, so-and-so, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his ancestors did. Well, what's fair? <laughs> Second Kings chapter 24, uh, we kind of get the story to pick up for us a little bit. Uh, pick up, uh, reading with me in verse 8, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king. That's like worse than an eight-year-old being king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for three months. His mother's name was that. True. She was from Jerusalem. Check that out. She was from Jerusalem. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord just as his father had done. That's, you have influence. Verse 10. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. You might know the name Nebuchadnezzar. You know the story of Daniel, Lion's Den? Okay, so those two are going to, we'll, we'll talk about Daniel next week, uh, but they'll, they'll go together, okay? Um, so, verse 12, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, King of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he took Jehoiakim prisoner. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed the treasures from the temple. All right, here we go. He removed the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace. And the cup, of the, gold, uh, the cup of the gold articles that Solomon, the king of Israel, had made for the, the temple of the Lord. He carried all Jerusalem into exile, all the officers and fighting men, and all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. Verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim captive to Babylon. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon, the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and the prominent people of the land. The king of Babylon also deported, uh, also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and a 1,000 skilled workers and artisans. He made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, the king, in his place. 
and changed his name to Zedekiah. This isn't up there, but I want you to read, uh, just want you to listen to the next few verses. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. His mother's name was Hamatulah, okay, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. Fathers, you have influence. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened. It was because of the Lord's anger that all of this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, he thrust them from his presence. That's not fair. I'm going to read for you. Um, so it, when you go through the story, it'll give you some paraphrases that'll just bridge the gap. And this is what the next little bridge says. It says, God allowed the powerful king Nebuchadnezzar to begin crushing Jerusalem, Judah's last stronghold of promise and hope. And under King Nebuchadnezzar's order, a second larger group of Israelites was deported to Babylon in 597. They watch as this nation comes in and they walk into their temple. This is the place where they connect with God. This is the place that God had set up to say, this is my dwelling place. And he watches people from another nation, another religion come inside and start to take out all of the holy things. I don't know if we get the grasp or the weight of what's happening, but I bet there's weeping and wailing over what's happening. And then if that wasn't enough, it says Nebuchadnezzar set fire to the temple. God, where are you? (laughs) What are you doing while all this is happening? Have you ever been there? I want to ask you this question. Where's your hope? Now, here's the difference. There's, there's a difference between what we say hope and when the Bible talks about hope. We talk about hope. It's like, man, I really hope that the sermon's short so we can beat everybody to Freddy's. Right? Like, we hope that uh, Clemson goes undefeated. As a church, we hope Clemson goes undefeated. And when's the national championship? And if not, just that South Carolina will lose every game, okay, and Alabama. I think God hopes that too, but that's beside the point. Anyway, um, like hope. When we say hope, what we talk about is a really strong wish. I wish those things would happen. When the Bible talks about hope, it is a foregone conclusion that that thing will happen. Where is your rest? Where is your hope? Is it in your marriage? Is, is your hope in the future of your children? Is it in your finances or your career or your relationships? I'm just going to say, those things are really good, and they're great foundations. But you want to talk about something that's not fair? It's putting your hope in those things. All of those things will fail you if that's where your hope is. There's one thing or person who won't, God, I don't want to give away the end of the sermon, but you're welcome. Guess we can just take up an offering now. 
In verse 20, I just read, because of the Lord's anger, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he finally banished them away from his presence. Here's the question. That doesn't make sense with the Bible, right? Like, I mean, isn't God supposed to be slow to anger? Isn't God supposed to be patient, right? He's supposed to be all about love. So why would he banish them from his presence? And I know, I'm, I'm, I mean, we're close as a church family, and I know that there are some people sitting in these seats who feel banished from God's presence, and maybe there's been a time in your life, maybe you're currently there, maybe you're going to travel into that season of life where you feel like God has just said, get away from me. And we pray and we pray and we pray and God's nowhere to be seen. We try to go to church, but it just doesn't seem like God's there. Or that God wants to do anything different in our life. You may feel like you're in this southern kingdom. God, I need you now. This just isn't fair. Here's what happens for the nation of, for the southern kingdom. It doesn't get better. Actually, we read this in 2 Kings chapter 25, the very next chapter, it says this in verse, uh, well, there's this famine inside Jerusalem. And they they don't know what to do. Well, verse 4, we pick up this um, in chapter 25. Verse 4, then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled. The whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, through, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled toward the Araba, but the Babylonians' army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his own eyes. Then they, put a, then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. On the seventh day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, he came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses in Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon, but the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards of the field. Genesis opens up this perfect place, and then Adam and Eve kind of, they mess up, and if they hadn't done it, I would have. Then we, then we read about this dude. His name's Abraham. God says, I want you to leave your people. I want you to leave where you're from, and I'm going to take you to a land. I'm going to give you a land of flowing of milk and honey. You're going to have descendants, as many as the stars of the sky, right? Well, it kind of gets off to a slow start, but eventually it happens. And then they find themselves as a nation enslaved to Egypt. God raises up this leader, Moses. He's like, I got you. You're my people. I got you. Moses leads them out of Egyptian slavery, right? And then they get to this river, and Egypt's kind of coming onto the people. They're about to kill them. Like, they're trapped, and God opens up. The Red Sea, and they walk through on dry ground. 
this story's awesome. Then they wander for 40 years. It's like, oh, the story was awesome. It's like a Harry Potter movie. It just won't end, right? And then God raises up another leader. His name's Joshua. They find themselves on the verge of the promised land from all the way back in Genesis. And God's like, this is the land I'm going to give you. And he opens up the Jordan. They walk through on dry, dry ground. They walk into the promised land. Um, then God's with them, right? They go on this conquest. They clear out the lands. God's given them uh, victory after victory after victory. God's on their side. We read about David. He comes in and he leads the people after, you know, the whole Saul debacle. David becomes king and he leads them into a pursuit of God. He's a man after God's own heart, despite his own, despite his own flaws. The nation's doing pretty good. And then Solomon, he's got the business acumen, right? He leads them to prosperity and safety. The nation of Israel sitting pretty. We are good most powerful nation, at least it seems because they've got God on their side in the world. Solomon dies, then they can't decide who's going to be king. And so this, this awesome, powerful nation splits the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And all hell breaks loose. Now every man is serving himself, every woman is serving himself. They're doing what's best in their own eyes. Look, how do we get to a point where there's no longer God's people in God's promised land when God from Genesis, you promised this isn't fair? And maybe this week as you were reading, you thought the same thing. This isn't fair. God, how could you desert your people? God, how could you leave your people? God, how could you desert me? God, how could you leave me? I think the problem is we don't see justice the same way that God does. I mean, what we choose to ignore is the time and time again that God sends prophets. Like, what we don't pay attention to is that God sacrifices his holy reputation on these, these people who keep turning their back on him. That's not fair. What's not fair is that God would save them over and over and over and they turn their back on him over and over and over and he still keeps coming back that's not fair it's almost as if uh it's almost as if they they say you know i know that you saved us from this famine i know you saved us from this slavery but that's not fair. It's almost like time and time again, they rip their arm away from him and turn around and say, God, I hate you. It's not fair. I think God has room to say the same thing. And you know what's not fair? Is that God never gave up. Randy Frazee, who's one of the editors of the story, he says that the, the, the main narrative of the story is God's relentless pursuit to get his people back. And isn't that true? When you read page after page after page after page after page after page of Scripture, you're like, God, when are you just going to give up? Because these people just don't get it. I think I might talk about us there, but <laughs> when, are you, when are you just going to stop? Because these people just won't get it. And he's like, never. I won't stop. And in this time, he sends a prophet. His name's Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And here's why. Because he cries. 
He cries because of how much he loves his people. And he cries because of how much he loves God. Love God, love people. Imagine that. But what he, why he's crying is because God's heart's broken for his people. And why he's crying is because his people just won't turn back to his God. And so he's called the weeping prophet. And so he writes, there's two books that he writes in the, in the Old Testament. We're going to look at both of them just for a second. <clears throat> one is Jeremiah chapter, well, Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. We're going to look at one in a minute. And then Lamentations. You know what it is to lament, right? Well, Jeremiah has maybe the most famous verse ever. You might have it tattooed on you. That's okay. Uh, and, and it's going to be even more awesome at the end of all of this. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. You guys, you guys know this verse? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. I'm going to be a jerk here for a second. And that doesn't mean what you think it means. Okay. So I, I, I've, I know people, they're like starting this new business, and they're like, Jeremiah 29, 11, he's got me. Maybe. Uh, or like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't have any really good examples. But <clears throat> what this verse doesn't mean is that you can go do something because God's got a plan for you to prosper. Like, you can't just wake up tomorrow and be like, I'm going to hit the gym now because God's got plans for me to prosper. And then leave that day like, God, what happened to that plan? Because I'm not, pro I'm perspiring. I'm not prospering. I just made that up. That's not bad. That's not bad. Perspiring. Prosper. Okay, forget it. Maybe it was bad. I don't know. Here's, here's what I'm teaching my, our small group right now. The key to understanding the Bible is the context of what you're reading. There's more than just the context of reading, right? So like you read a story and whatever's in the middle is the context, right? It's more than just that. What about in history? What's going on in history? What's going on in the world? And that matters. And so when Jeremiah writes, Jeremiah chapter 29, it's in the middle of being exiled out of his homeland, where he's from, the people he cries for, the people he loves, I don't know that this means like, we're going to prosper, guys. <laughs> like, here's, here's, here's the whole chapter. Ver, uh, chapter, uh, well, I got it up here. I'm going to read with you. Uh, can you go to, there we go. All right, here we go. Listen. Get the, whole, get the whole picture. Get the whole picture. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles. And to the priests and the prophets and all the other people, Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem. To, we're in that spot, right? We're in the story and where we just read. Can you go to verse 4? Uh, okay, yeah. Verse 4. This is what he says. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. God, are you crazy? Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in the number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Anybody else think Jacksonville is your exile? <laughs> Okay, 
pray for it. Because if Jacksonville prospers, you prosper. All right, next, next verse. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you, uh, you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. All right, look, so he, he, they're in exile. God says, while you're in exile, marry, have kids, plant gardens, eat from it, like seek the good of the city. We did a whole series on this. That's why our story's here. We're going to seek the good of the city. We're going to love the city we're in. And if you feel like this is exile, this is a perfect city, perfect church for you to get involved in and try to love the city. Verse 10. This is what the Lord says. All right, here we go. Here we go. We're in verse 10. It's like the verse before your tattoo. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. And this exile is a part of it. So enjoy it. <laughs> like, you're there. Settle down in your exile. This is a part of the plan. But I won't leave you there. Plans for you to prosper and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and the future. Can you see how encouraging that is to people that are going away in exile? God says, I've never left you I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I'll listen to you. Seek me. You will seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Verse 14 says this, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity and I will gather you from the nations and places where I have banished you and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. What if we believe that God would never leave us or forsake us? And you might be in that exile. You might be in that moment right now where you're like, God, this isn't fair. God, I just want to have a baby. This is not fair. God, I just want my marriage to work. This is not fair. God, I'm going through hell right now. Where are you? This is not fair. And God's like, hold on. I haven't left. And I'm not going to. I know you're in your exile right now. Just sit still. Seek me, and you'll find me. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to destroy you. I have a plan for you. Now, what we'll see in the next few weeks is God's plan is for them to come back. They will rebuild their city. But what's God's plan for you, your prosperity? It's not money. It could be, but it's not. It's Jesus. And you may never get out of your exile. You may die in your exile. But then you get to prosper. <laughs> then you get to prosper. We're going to skip this last part because I've talked too much today. Read Lamentations chapter 3. And God, God really tells us there that uh, he's going to deliver to those who call on him. Be patient in your waiting Look to God in your waiting. He loves you. He cares for you. His grace is new every day. In a, in a book where Jeremiah is lamenting about his life situation, he says, it is good to wait on the Lord. Be patient in the Lord. For all of you here this morning that are saying it's not fair, it might not be to you. But God hasn't left you or forsaken you. 
He's with you always until the very end of the age. Man, I felt horrible. I felt horrible. I sat on the edge of that bed as an eight-year-old lawyer because I knew what was right and fair. Right? I sat on the edge of that bed, and I realized I've, I hurt the woman who's given up everything for me. And uh, it's just something about seeing your mom cry because of you, right? So I'm sitting there on the edge of bed. It seemed like I was sitting there for hours. And then I hear a knock on the door. And I hear my dad's voice come through. Hey, open the door. And y'all know that dad voice, right? (laughs) Open the door. And that's when I just pause and realize, all right, I'm going to get it. I'm just going to take it, right? So when I got the courage and boldness to just get up and put a pillow in the back of my pants, um, I, I was like, all right, I'm going to just go do it. So I open up the door, and my dad's not there, but my mom is. Yeah, that's not fair. <laughs> it's deceitful. My mom's standing there, and it's like, come on. I just wish my dad would have been there with my tail. But not, no, it was my mom. And what happened next wasn't fair. She came in, she sat me down on the bed, and she said, I'm going to try to explain to you why you couldn't go outside. I don't know that, I, I think I'd forgotten what the whole fight was about. And I was like, oh yeah, that's what this is about? <laughs> and she said, here's why you can't go outside. And I don't know that I even cared at that point. But she said, I want you to hear something else. You can hate me the rest of your life, but I will never stop loving you. And I will love you until the day that I die, no matter what you feel about me. And it was the first time I think I've experienced what grace is. That's not fair, what she did. But that's the gospel. You know what's not fair? Is that uh, the wages of sin are death. And I'm never given the opportunity to pay for them. Because Jesus did it. What's not fair is I don't deserve the life I have. I don't deserve a freedom in Christ. What's not fair is that Jesus died on a cross for me. That's not fair. I don't know that I want fair. I want grace. I want rest. And I want freedom in in knowing who Jesus is. And I want that for you. What if you started living your life believing that God has never left you or forsaken you, even in the middle of your exile? God, I love you. Forgive me for the times that I rip away from you. God, I don't hate you. God, I want to pursue you. In the middle of a a drought, in the middle of a famine, in the middle of an exile where the circumstances around me say that you don't, God, I want you to scream, I love you. God, I want to seek you so that I'll find you. God, I want to pray to you so that you'll answer. Forgive me when I don't. 
God, let us be a church that, that loves you first. God, that doesn't fall in love with the things around us, the circumstances around us, but God, that in the middle of our exile, we have joy because you haven't left. God, that we're not fearful, we're not scared because you're with us. God, you are good. And we believe that. God, let that sink into our hearts. Today, we're humbled to sit in front of the cross, which was not fair. God, in the times that we seek justice, let it be in a way that you want. But God, remind us of what grace looks like. Pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.